0: This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. This presentation is delivered by the Stanford Center for Professional Development, providing graduate-level education to working professionals online, on campus, and on site. For more information, please visit study.stanford.edu. So now I'd like to introduce today's speaker. Today we have Ian Buck from NVIDIA, and he'll be speaking about general purpose computing on the graphics processing unit. He's working on the GeForce 8800 CUDA technology, and he'll be speaking to us about the various things they're doing at NVIDIA now. His background is he started off at Princeton, where he got a bachelor's degree in computer science, and then he came to Stanford for his PhD in computer science in the graphics lab. And he worked on stream processing. He has a PhD thesis entitled Stream Computing on Graphics Hardware. And he also developed the Brook Software Toolchain that was mentioned a few weeks ago when Professor Bill Daly spoke in this class. And the Brook Software Toolchain is used for abstracting the GPU as a general purpose streaming coprocessor. Currently, Ian Buck is the GPU Compute Software Manager at NVIDIA and he'll be talking to us today about the CUDA technology there. So, please welcome Ian Buck.
1: Thanks. I should mention that Brooke was a definitely a team effort, <laughs> although I did get to use it in pieces. Um, so, yeah, I want to talk about um, what we've done in the Geforce 800. That's the latest GPU that has come out of NVIDIA and some of the both architectural features and software stack that we've built on top of it to help leverage people that want to use the GPU not just for graphics or not just for generating images or games, but also uh, leveraging the floating point horsepower for general purpose computing. So I, I always want to start with what um, GPUs were originally designed to do. This is some pictures from the, the launch event from for the GeForce 8800. Um, and, and the, the important thing to notice here is that the, the graphics com- the world has evolved extremely rapidly. Every six months, we, NVIDIA tries to double its, its graphics horsepower. And as a result, the scenes and the complexity of the scenes, the quality, the detail, and just the raw computational horsepower that goes into generating scenes is able to keep up. Graphics artists, game developers, um, and, and as well as scientific visualization, can pump, pump a lot of data through these chips and they're always asking for more, which, which drives this level of innovation and allows us to sort of keep doubling our performance and having a customer waiting on the other end to double the quality, the complexity of the image, the size of the image, the amount of data they process. Um, uh, what flavor
2: of floating point
1: is this? Uh, this is uh, 32-bit single precision.
2: Thank
1: you. So of course people have used uh, GPUs for non-graphics reasons, uh, non-rendering purposes. The earliest of that may be been just straight up image processing, if I want to filter an image. Graphics if at its roots is basically image processing, so people have figured out how to do image processing. But it can also be used for signal processing or other areas of data intensive computation. Um, one exa- and, and the reason for that is that GPUs uh, originated as a sort of a fixed function rendering pipeline. It was sort of geometry in, image out, to a fully programmable platform where geometry comes in and you get to run an arbitrary program on that geometry and and images come out. And I'll talk about the graphics pipeline in a minute, but I wanted to give you an example of some of the things that people have figured out, even today, how to leverage the GPU for general purpose computing. This is a a work done by a company called Mercury Computer, Um, they took a, a, a collection of our, Quadro NVIDIA G- uh, GPUs and are working on um, tomosynthesis. So this is basically to, for mammography, for instance, uh, to cut down on the, the, the amount of time it takes to process data. They can actually take multiple scans, um, uh, x-ray scans, and do 3D reconstruction of the volume data le- Use on the GPUs. And this because the GPUs have so much floating-point horsepower, they can take something that took five hours to do offline down to five minutes. So, taking it from sort of a, almost real time sort of results while, while the patient's waiting instead of having to come back, make a follow up appointment, and, and, and see their data. Uh, furthermore, this actually, w- uh, um, because of this, they could process more data, they could do higher resolution volumes because they had more time to compute, and they could find tumors that maybe they couldn't find in the past. Another example of a company is called Accelaware. They're doing FDTD simulation, which is basically electrodynamic simulation in a, in a, in a medium. And they use this primarily for uh, EM radiation simulation, so cell phone design. When, I, when you buy a cell phone from Nokia, Nokia spent a lot of time and a lot of computing horsepower figuring out what should be the shape, design, length, structure of the antenna that's in the cell phone that works effectively not just in air, but when your hand's grasping the phone, when it's up to, your, up to your head and has to talk to a cell tower that may be on the other side of all the stuff that's inside my head. So they actually do these simulations with a real head, with a real hand, to try to figure out what the signal quality is going to be on the other side of my, m- my head. Same thing here, this is a picture of a pacemaker, so they do pacemaker antenna design uh, to see what the, the EM field looks like outside of the pacemaker. Um, so what they do is all this, this is basically a uniform grid calculation. So they can, it, it's, a, it's a blatantly parallel kind of application that happens over uh, a, a, a grid domain. And they can parallelize it and move the data from just general CPU processing over to the GPU and you know get basically linear speedups as they, as they use more and more GPUs.
2: The green bar that says 20X is much more than twice the size of the 10X one. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> it might be an optical illusion, I'm not sure. That's a marketing slide, so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so though so though there are companies out there that have discovered the ability for GPUs to do general purpose computing, it's not a widespread technology. You don't see everyone today buying GPUs to do computation. There's a couple of reasons for that, and I'll go into those. But what we've done with the next this next harbor, the GeForce Eighteen Hundred, and with, with CUDA and the software stack that we've built, is try to make sort of general purpose computing on GPUs a lot more accessible to, um, to folks that want to use the GPU for it. So we've added a couple things to the GPU architecture that I'm going to go into, some details. Architectural features that make, it make computing with GPUs easier. Uh, we've added a, of course, architecture only gets you so far, we've added a whole software stack on top of this, so that instead of programming in graphics, languages, and terms, and APIs, there's a dedicated computing platform. That's targeted toward this new architecture, and of course, marketing slide. There's you know to get to basically that gets you to that that higher performance, and also potentially opens up the GPU to application areas that it wasn't well suited to before due to the constraints of the architecture. So let's talk about the computing model. If I had to give sort of uh, what the graphics pipeline looks like in one slide, you guys are smart. Maybe you can figure <laughs> you can get it from this one slide. But effectively, this, hasn't cha- this has been the same way um, uh, for at least five, maybe even ten years. If you go all the way back to the SGI days, you can, you can see, you see a similar pipeline developed. The input of the graphics pipeline is, is generally triangles. You submit the whole world, this room would have to be deconstructed into, into a base primitive tri- of triangles and issued to the, to the GPU. So the GPU basically receives a whole bunch of triangles that it needs to convert into an image. The triangles, of course, are, are oriented in, in three space. The pipeline starts with a vertex program. That's basically the program you run on the triangle. So every triangle, you're allowed to run a program that can stretch or, or translate or move the triangle into its proper position on the screen. Uh, so that's a fully, uh, uh, in today's graphics hardware, that's a fully programmable engine. Basically, it's, it receives as input one vertex of a triangle, and the program is responsible for trans- translating that, tr- that vertex into the, into the world. Yeah? Can
2: those programs execute branch statements? Or yes. or yeah. They're they're
1: similar uh, in functionality to to CPU programs, except they tend to be a little uh, they're restricted to be a little bit shorter because there's hundreds of millions of triangles to process in a sixtieth of a second, which is the typical frame time for uh, a render scene. After the vertex program has been been processed, uh, the triangles are all in the right place in in the world, we now uh, and, and projected onto the screen. Uh, we, there's a fixed function unit called the rasterizer. All the rasterizer does is take that triangle and transform it into little pixels. So that triangle covers a portion of the screen. <coughs> the rasterizer is responsible for generating um, what we call pixels um, or fragments for each of those p- places the triangle covers on the screen. And then there's a second programmable unit called the fragment program that basically me- takes as input a pixel on the screen. You're given the x, y location the triangle data, whatever lighting information is, in, is available in the room, and environment information, and you have to produce a color. So this is basically the back end of the process. After we've taken our triangles, transformed them into pixels, we now get to run an arbitrary program to figure out, okay, at this x-y location of this triangle, with this environment, what the, co- what the color should be. Typically here you do lighting calculations. Okay, the angle of the surface determines how well it's lit from a particular light. Or you can take uh, decals, or what they're called textures. Uh, images and paste them onto pixels if you have a certain surface with a certain texture, like this shirt or, or whatever a pattern. Or compute your own pattern to draw. That of course gets dumped to the, to the GPU memory and that, that memory is scanned out as part of the, um, the, the video display. G- graphics pipeline in 30 seconds or less. How do people use this for general purpose computing? Well, it's quite simple. Um, a lot of, there's a, all the floating point horsepower sitting basically at the back end of this pixel, uh, fragment processor. The reason for that is there's a million, you know, you may have a hundred thousand triangles, but you're gonna have a hundred million fragments, so most of the performance is sitting, is sitting here. M- many more pixels than you do triangles. So a typical GPGPU program, um, uh, I should mention GPGPU stands for General Purpose Computing on Graphics Hardware, uh, it's an acronym that was coined, uh, guess at least four years ago now, um, that is defined sort of using, for, for doing sort of general purpose computing with legacy graphics hardware. Programs usually work by sending down a, a quad, basically a, a, a square. That of course is just, just two triangles that are put side to side. The vertex program doesn't do anything. The rasterizer basically turns the that triangle into a bunch of pixels. And those pixels effectively are independent units of computation. They get written to a screen. So if I'm going to... Add two long vectors. I may run a pr- uh, send down a, a, a rectangle which has the same number of pixels as elements in my vector. Read my two values from my two inputs. Do the computation and write it out to the screen. Sort of kind of a primitive array based um, uh, uh, programming model. But it's a little elaborate because at first. This is not how these, these chips were originally designed, right? You have to write an OpenGL program or a, a DirectX program, or basically these are two main graphics APIs that are available today for doing 3D rendering, uh, and you have to construct these programs. And it, of course, if you read an OpenGL book or a DirectX book, it doesn't tell you how to use them use GPUs for general purpose computing. It shows you how tells you how to light a scene or something like that. This is kind of what one of those fragment programs. From an architectural drawing, uh, sort of an uh, architectural programming model standpoint, what it looks like. It has a set of input registers. those are predefined by the rasterizer. the rasterizer has decided, okay, this fragment program needs to work on this XY, uh, and this here's the triangle data and like and such. You have a fragment program which consists of a sequence of instructions. The assembly is very similar to an x86 assembly. Um, uh, with some constraints, I'll get into that in a second. That the input you have is, one is texture. These are those images, your decals you want to apply to triangles or pixels as they're, as they're to determine their color. Uh, in a GP, GPU world, in, in, in general purpose computing, this is our memory. We've, we have a whole bunch of memory stored as images on the graphics hardware, and we, just, we read from that memory. There's a set of constant registers, which are basically fixed constants and, um, that are, are cheap and affordable. And of course, some general purpose registers for doing your computation. The result of the fragment program gets written into <coughs> an output register. And the output register. When the program completes, that whatever's in the output register becomes the color on the screen. So this makes sense from a graphics standpoint. Yeah? This is a really
2: stupid question. Okay. Is there an of L1 and L2 cache on the GPU, or is it just texture and There are caches, caches?
1: in the GPU, but they tend to be designed for graphics needs. For instance, if you notice, this texture is a read-only uh, memory space. So the caches tend to be designed for read-only data, which is which simplify the caches significantly. So what are some of the problems with using this for for general-purpose computing? First is I mentioned this before: you've got to use a graphics API, and and there's a lot of overhead into setting up scenes, setting up the lighting consistence, setting up all these sort of uh, setting up these textures and images, um, for But not for what they were going to use for, not for rendering, but for your own purposes. A a big overhead. In fact, this is probably the number one thing that stops people when they they read about it, they get excited, and then they realize they've got to become experts in OpenGL and experts in in DirectX and and, and these advanced APIs just to get to the point of doing the simplest, you know, add two vectors kind of program. Once you get to that point, you run into some other problems. Uh, addressing mode. So accessing memory is done through reading images. And what that means is you have a, se- a series of textures or images that are stored in GPU memory. And when you access them, you access them as images. So I want s- I re- to read from image B at position x, comma y. Uh, if I had to explain this to a regular CPU guy, it would it'd be defining your memory, spra- memory space as a segmented 2D memory space. And we've gone well, well past segments since I think 286 or something like that. The 386 of segments. So it, it's very confusing. Plus these images can only be cert- of certain size. Typically 4K by 4K elements. Um, they can't, they're not, it's not a general purpose memory interface. It's a, it's a specialized memory interface. But for a lot of problems you can get around that but it's, it's confusing. The shader capabilities. Basically what can this program do? Well the one big thing that's constrained if you notice all of your me- access to memory is through images, but your output is only through these output registers. Your entire program can only write to one memory location, which is, you know, <laughs> it's like, if you if by that you're designing a, a program, you're going to write to a region of the, sp- of the screen, and the rasterizer basically decides, okay, th- I'm sending down this triangle it's going to cover this portion of the screen. I now have to figure out what the function that sits on top of a particular memory location has to be. It's a very sort of functional programming language approach where you don't get to decide where you want to write; you just have to define the function that sits over a region of memory. Uh, functioning languages are great. I, you know, uh, they're they're pure, they're they're appealing from a theoretical standpoint, but they tend to be pretty constraining when you want to get down to to real performance. Um, and and how can you know? This is this makes sense from a graphic standpoint, right? You're, you're writing a triangle to the screen, but from a computing standpoint, it's it's. It's quite awkward. In fact, this restriction alone tends to be the biggest sort of constraint in the programming model, because you have to design your whole algorithm around this, this functional approach. Instruction sets. Uh, before the GeForce 8800, everything was done floating point. It's sort of backwards the way architectures were designed in the past, of you, know, you started with integers, and then someone came along and did a, a, a um, Floating point library, then there's floating point hardware. We started from floating point from the get-go. The the reason for that is we tend to work in, you know, color spaces which tend to be zero to one, that kind of thing. They don't tend to be arbitrary integer values. You also were missing bit ops, so you had no sort of you were missing all the fundamentals of a a CPU instruction set. This further got complicated by addressing modes because you had all of your addressing in floating point space. So imagine trying to like compute addresses into 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 an image or into a memory. And then you realize once you got to a certain size, floating point numbers start to skip integer numbers. So there's certain spaces of your memory you just couldn't address. Um, one other area is, is, is that this tends to be very sort of a communication limited architecture. Pixels or these fragment shaders are not allowed to talk to their neighbors. Typically. Our graphics hardware is actually working on multiple pixels at the same time. It wouldn't make sense to have one extremely fast, you know, shader doing one pixel at a time. We'd have to run that at an ex- extreme clock rate in order to get our, our times down. So what graphics architectures do is they actually stamp out multiple of these uh, fragment uh, processing units to work on multiple pixels in parallel. Well, one thing you notice in writing general purpose programs is that you often, because they can't communicate and because you're only writing to one location, you often have to sort of fetch the same data that your neighbor's probably fetching. Or if you're doing some kind of basic filtering application, you're writing to this location, he's writing to that location, you're often just reading neighboring data, and you, you end up overfetching. And sort of hoping, praying that any caching architecture under there is, is picking it up. Of course, the caching architecture was originally designed for image processing and designed for rendering, not general purpose processing, so you tend to blow out these caches pretty quickly. So you also get you over-fetch and you also get overcomputation. Some of the addressing math that you would normally do to figure out, okay, where I should read from here, is the same addressing math your neighbor is doing. Um, so it's wasteful. And then, of course, I've also I've emphasized the inability to basically scatter. You can't, you can't decide where you want to write to. So imagine right, you know, thinking about how you write some of the core basic algorithms that are available in, you know, that've been done in the 70s and 60s and 50s. You know, basic sorting, without being able to do an indirect write. Pretty constraining. Actually, it's kind of interesting because it allows you, you know rethink a whole bunch of algorithms, You know, revisit sorting on this kind of architecture, which that opportunity from a researcher standpoint doesn't come along that too often. So what the architects did was they took the original, this GeForce 7800 was the previous chip, they took the fragment processor and they said, OK, what constraints are here that make sense for graphics, but maybe we can relax some of those constraints uh, to, provi- to make it a little more easier to solve some of these problems uh, for, for general purpose computing. So you start with the, the picture again. Input, input registers, output registers, textures, constants, and the fragment program. And they added basically three things. One is, okay, let's not call these things fragment programs anymore. They're not, you're not operating on pixels. You're, you're not generating images. Really what you're doing is every little pixel on the screen, every little location that you're trying to write and program that you're running is a, effectively is a different thread. So let's just call them thread programs. And what I'm going to do is actually issue a bunch of thread programs to operate over a set of data. And, and instead of having my x, y location of the screen and triangle data come into these input registers, well, we'll just get a thread number, a thread ID. And the hardware will just dole out, you know, kick off these, the, the, the fragment program with uh, lots of threads. And each, each thread will get a different thread ID. And we'll use the thread ID to figure out what part of the problem I want to solve. Along the way, they actually improved the program, program because they realized that having only floating point instructions is a little constraining. <laughs> so, the big features are they effectively, these programs could be statically a million instructions long. There's, there's effectively a virtually unlimited. Um, uh, every uh, program that I want to run, I should say, f- function effectively, that I want to run over a set of data it can be up to a, a few million instructions. There's full bit bit and interop. So we basically have sort of x86 or CPU parity instruction sets. The only thing missing, I think, is uh, uh, branch indirect. So we can't do function pointers, but eh, pretty close. Uh, There are no limits on branching and looping. Uh, In the past, in previous GPU architectures, you could only branch so many times. You could only loop so many times before the hardware kicked your program out of the machine. Uh, This was due to, architectural constraints that were internal. Those have all been alleviated, so you can branch and loop uh, as much as you want. So is millions of
2: instructions
1: executed or millions of instructions in your actual program? In your actual function. So you can have multiple, I should say that you can have uh, a function that you want to issue on the GPU. That function can compile to up to, I think it's two million static instructions compiled. You can run for as long as, well, as long as, you, <laughs> as long as you want, really. Uh, one thing they did do, uh, we noticed that a lot of GPGPU applications, you know, people using the GPU, were often doing things like imaging or volume processing. And, to, and we wanted to sort of save on all the addressing math you may, might have had to do to, f- to figure out, OK, this thread ID needs to work on this part of the volume or this part of the 2D image. The hardware actually can dole out not just a 1D thread ID, but a, a 2D thread ID. So you can kick off uh, you know, 16 by 16 threads in the GPU and get a thread ID that's already pre-segmented into, two, into a two-dimensional number. This helps a lot with, with cutting down on some of the addressing math. One big complaint, obviously, was the inability to scatter. The access to memory was super constrained. So we opened that up. Uh, we have a fully general load/store to the GPU memory. The memory that's on the board, there are load instructions, there are store instructions. There's no restrictions on how you can access it. It's really just like a CPU here. Um, this was an obvious one. Uh, it, it prevents, it, it causes a lot of sort of uh, uh, interesting dilemmas. If I have multiple threads hitting the same location, you're gonna, it's just as if I had multiple threads in a CPU hitting the same location. There could be race conditions and, and, and that. But we've we've opened it up. So as a result, it's really up to you to decide. Okay, I can kick off this many threads and decide how you want to partition your data across the problem. Previously, sort of basically the data partition, the data parallelism, defined how you wanted to define how you wanted to parallelize your problem. Now you can decide how many threads make sense and then uh, to access what region of my data. Uh, one big uh, emphasis is, emphasis is that this is all on type memory, but. If, in the past, those images, those textures, were all type-defined. You had to create a RGBA image, and each channel had a float, uh, you know, a 32-bit float, or a 16-bit uh, integer. Uh, it was very confusing, and 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 it didn't make sense in a general architecture to try to make all memory types because people create structs and all sorts of things. So it's fully untyped memory. Of course, with the access to gold memory, we can do full pointer support in a programming model. So we can do, which we didn't have before. The only access to memory was through image referencing, but now we have full pointers and, and that sort of thing. These things, I mean, from a CPU standpoint, seem obvious, but <laughs> to have a GPU to do this was, was a big deal. Okay, so we have threading, we have access to memory. The other big one that we're missing was um, communication and cutting down on uh, allowing threads to intercommunicate with each other and also try to cut down on um, the number of times we had to go to memory. So we, they added this uh, piece of hardware called the parallel data cache. This is a dedicated on-chip memory that's shared between all the threads that are resonant in the machine. So you can think of this as an effective software-managed cache where you can allocate variables that live in this, this parallel data cache. It's not a hardware cache, you have full control over what gets allocated when you access it and that sort of thing. Uh, and you can block your computation for this cache. So it's, it's because it's on chip, it's very fast. And it's, it's a shared across all the threads, so the threads can intercommunicate <coughs> and cooperate. I'll give an example of that in a second. But I want to emphasize that it's explicitly managed instead of hardware managed like a CPU L1 or L2 cache. Yeah?
2: How big
1: is this cache? And 16k. So here's a, a sort of basic example. If I'm doing a fluid simulation and I'm at the pressure stage, and I need to, uh, I'm going it's an uncompressible fluid, so I need to normalize the pressure across the entire uh, grid, I'm doing a finite, uh, y- there's people in the audience who know this math better than I do, so I'm not even going to use the words. <laughs> um, but, you know, if I had to boil it down to a simple thing, you're updating the pressure and you're doing an error to solve, a loop over the grid to to, norm- to figure out what the, what the to resolve any pressure differences because it's an incompressible fluid. So uh, the pressure uh, to update, you look at your neighbors, see what the pressure is of your neighbors and update your your pressure value uh, based on that. And typically, so in a legacy GPGP application, I may be sending down a, uh, a rectangle that covers the entire grid for every grid point. I look at my neighbors uh, and, and compare and update my pressure. Of course, neighboring values are going to be reading the same values and you've got that you have um, the overfetch problem. Um, plus, this is an iterative solve where I maybe need to do this multiple times. But every pass in a legacy GPU application, I've got to write it back out to memory and do a whole nother pass over the grid again to update the pressure. So I have to always loop through off-chip memory. So on the, the left, I've got the CPU version. Effectively, it's a, you, you've got, you can work out of a L1 cache, but you typically have very small ALU. In traditional streaming GP, GPU, you sort of stream all the stuff through the video memory. So your pressures, in, like I described, you're, every time step of the pressure, uh, sorry, every iteration of the pressure solve, you're, you're looping through through GPU memory. This can quickly make you uh, mem- GPU memory bandwidth or pin bandwidth limited. With a parallel data cache, you can basically put the pressure field in that shared memory that's shared between all the threads. So I can load a region of my 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 grid into the shared memory. I can. Uh, I save myself on the overfetch because I've only read it from the video memory into the GPU once. Uh, I have full control over that, so I know. I, I, I know I'm getting good caching. The other thing I can do is I can spin on this memory and do the pressure solving, do multiple iterations in the parallel data cache instead of having to go all the way out to to video memory. And as a result, my problem switches from being a bandwidth limited application to being an ALU limited application, which, which is the the higher performance uh, aspect. So this, I, I've, I've talked to this already, but it basically addresses one of the fundamental problems with with legacy stream computing, is that stream computing, it, it by adding a parallel data cache, by adding an on chip, sort of indexable memory, um, I bring the data closer to the ALU. And I'm, I'm I'm sure you guys have had architecture discussions already in this in this course that highlighted. Uh, different architectures that leverage this. Yeah.
2: Parallel data cache size. It's 16k
1: per processor. So we'll, we'll, I'll talk about what the 8800 looks like in a second. So just to highlight it, uh, streaming typically is a gather-in. So legacy GP GPU on previous architectures, it was characterized as streaming, where you did a gather-in reading. through from images at any location with a restricted write, and the memory tends to be far from the L U, with no inter-element communication. With CUDA and the, uh, the 8800, there's a more general data parallel model: full gather scatter. It's up to you how you want to parallelize your data. Sorry, parallelize your computation across a set of data, um, uh, and you're allowed to communicate and and solve problems more efficiently. So this is what we've built. So that's the, the general architecture of what's new in, in GPUs to help. Um, this is the first implementation. This is in the 8800 GTX. Uh, the Just some data here. The core clock on this uh, is running at 575 megahertz. Uh, it has 128 multiprocessors. Uh, basically, what that means is 128 ALU <coughs> engines um, in the chip. Those ALUs are running at 1.35 gigahertz. So most of the chip runs at 575 megahertz. The the ALUs u- use one at 1.35. The memory is 900 megahertz, and uh, we we this card that you can actually you can buy this at Fry's today has about 768 megabytes of memory. Yeah. So do each of
2: those ALUs have 16 mm-hmm. kilobytes of parallel cache? Here's the so here's the
1: block diagram. What a G80 looks like. Uh, sorry, 8800 looks like in, internally. So uh, what there is is a, w- w- there's a command stream, uh, we kick off functions on the GPU. We say we wanna run this many threads in this configuration. Those, those collections of threads are doled out to the different processors. And in the, in the 8800 actually there are 16 thread processors. Each thread processor has, what is it there? Uh, eight um, uh, ALUs per. And then they, but they all share a, par- a parallel data cache. So we have multiple, basically, processors in the machine that, that, are, that are working on the threads in parallel.
2: on the last slide, it was it 900 megahertz it's pin power. bandwidth, or was that clock rate for the DDRs? That's the clock rate for the DDRs. Okay, so it's so twice it's, that. Okay. Well,
1: no, so it's divided by two. This is, this is taking the DDR times two number.
2: Okay. If
1: I look at the clock, I don't voltages Is that low.
2: the data rate or the control rate is the better question? The
1: data rate is, it, we get about 60, we have observe 60 gigabytes a second. Okay. Okay. So each thread processor, yeah, I've already talked to this, 16K, there's your number. Um, one thing I should emphasize is that it's a fully scalar architecture. So in the past, GPUs have been all vector type. You, you know, it made sense from a graphic standpoint, you're working in colors, they tend to be RGB, maybe an alpha, or an X, Y, Z, and a W a homogeneous coordinate. So it made sense to be a vector architecture. Um, this was a kind of a pain from a general purpose computing standpoint, because you had to take all your, alg- your programs and pat- write, you know, try to do them in a SIMD kind of fashion. The architecture is natively a scalar architecture, so there's no performance benefit necessarily to using the vector types, although they're still there if you want to from a program model. Precision is a question we get a lot. Basically, it's um, IEEE, it's e single precision floating point, that you get on a CPU with some exceptions. Uh, we don't have D norms, so we will round to zero. Uh, but the rounding mode, you know, we, have, uh, we support all the different rounding modes, and the default rounding mode is round to nearest even like you would expect on a CPU. But it is single precision. And I've talked about the feature set. Basically, it's it's effectively simil- very similar to a CPU instruction set, with the exception of, uh, I guess, branch indirect. So that's the architecture. Um, but I'm actually the software manager, so <laughs> I was given the task of of given this architecture, can we build a, a software stack on top of this to help people target this architecture? Because one of the biggest problems was. You know, people didn't want to use OpenGL or, or DirectX to program this thing. They wanted they wanted to use a more familiar platform. So the first question is, how do we you know wh- how do we talk about the GPU? Well, in the past, GPUs have often been referred to as sort of a, a graphics device. There was often an API, and you were controlling the API like you were controlling any sort of external peripheral in the system. From a computing standpoint, that doesn't make much sense. You don't want to think about a computing. Uh, you know machine over there that you have to talk through, you know, like a like a networking thing. Uh, really what we want to do is expose the GPU more as sort of a, a highly multi-threaded coprocessor. So it really should be sort of a coprocessor to the CPU. But it has some particularities. It has its own DRAM memory, so we need to have a separate memory space <coughs> space. Uh, and but it, and also runs many threads in parallel. So it's not really a CPU, it's it's a it's a, it's a slightly different architecture, but the idea here being is that we can take our application and take the sort of the data parallel portions of our code and offload them to the GPU to accelerate them. I want to emphasize that even though we're talking about threads, threads have a sort of a bad rap on the CPU world. That they're very heavyweight. They're heavyweight to start. They're heavyweight to switch between. Uh, you typically take an OS interrupt and all this OS has to get involved. Uh, On the GPU, we've designed, the the whole thing is designed to be multi-threaded from the get-go. So switching from one thread to another thread happens uh, on a a per-clock change. So they're very lightweight. They're lightweight to create, and they're lightweight to switch between. As a result, we can have lots of them in the machine and keep the machine busy because the machine's very efficient. If it has problems or has to hide latency with one thread, it can quickly switch to another thread Mm -hmm. and fill that latency. Oh I should emphasize one one flip thing is that, you know, we need lots of threads to keep the machine busy. Typically graphics is working uh, on you know, screen resolutions and we have lots of pixels flying and fragments flying, vertices flying through this machine. So natively we need lots of threads in the machine. So on a tip and the big difference between CPUs and GPUs on a CPU we may only need two or four threads to keep all the cores busy. On a GPU, we may, as I showed in, that in, the, in the diagram here, we're gonna need lots of threads to keep the machine busy. So we often typically work in terms of thousands of threads active in the machine. So the programming model, you know, we could, where, where to start with defu- building a new tool chain, new software stack for programming a GPU? Well, the most logical place was, since we are so close to a CPU instruction set at this point, and so many of our, you know, people that want to use this are familiar with C. Well, let's just port, build a C toolchain that works in the GPU. That's effectively what we've done. Now, of course, it's not a CPU, so we can't we can't take all of C. But we did. So we added s- extensions where necessary. But the general goal was to uh, provide full C support with some extensions. And those extensions are basically keywords that we put in front of declarations or instead of functions, uh, and what those map to. I, they're, they're defined, you know, they have global here, which uh, is a keyword that means that this function is a global function that should be executed on the GPU. Um, so our tool chain takes that function and compiles it for the GPU. Likewise, this variable, the global var, it has a device keyword in meaning that, it sh- that that variable should reside in the GPU memory. Shared means that the sh- vari- shared variable is shared across the threads; that should reside in the parallel data. So we're working towards C++ support. Uh, today, we only promise support for C. Our front end is a full C and C++ front end. The only, so all these, these keywords I've shown here are actually just decal specs or GCC attributes. And our front end can recognize those. Um, we're, we're the only place where we, we cheated and extended the language a little bit was to, to add this sort of funky angle bracket syntax. This is a function call that ends up on the GPU. But to call that function, we need to specify how many threads we want to kick off on the GPU. In fact, we need to specify two things. One is the number of threads I want to kick off on the GPU. And what's the collection of threads that are, get to share that parallel data cache? So we typically express this with two numbers. Um, we may kick off 500 threads uh, and the, uh, a collection of 500 threads, 100, uh, sorry, 128 blocks of threads, um, each block containing 500. The 500 threads share uh, the the parallel data cache. Um, another area that we're addressing is memory management. We have this GPU memory, you know, we have to, we, we want to provide access to allocate memory and free memory, so we've done that, and it's all explicit. In the past, graphics APIs tend to try to virtualize the memory on the GPU, they treat it as a cache. So you declare your, your textures and your images, and the driver would dynamically try to download and, and, and use the, the GPU memory as a cache. Uh, a lot of complaints from the GPGPU community, people have done this in the past, and that they are often fighting the texture manager, the image manager, that, that driver, because it's designed for graphics. So we, what we've built instead is a, a, a runtime API that allows you to do explicit memory allocation on the GPU. Um, when you do an allocation on the GPU, or it returns you a GPU pointer. That pointer you can pass to a GPU function and it can dereference it like you would normally expect on a C, in C. The software toolchain, of course, it's called CUDA, and every, all these functions are pre- prefaced with CUDA, but they're really just they're not much different than a uh, uh, the C runtime. Yeah. Do standard debugging tools like GDP
2: and
1: Phil? I'll talk about the toolchain mm-hmm. in a minute. Uh, we of course also provide mem copy routines to copy data from CPU memory into GPU memory, and of course GPU to GPU and GPU to CPU. Uh, these all, of course, use our the the GPU's native DMA engine to to copy data back and forth.
2: Memory in
1: between the uh, local stores. Uh, so the the memories the, the these mem copy routines are for really for downloading to the GPU global memory the onboard memory the on chip memory is initialized by the program and erased when the program leaves the GPU. So that when the this function when this function executes on the GPU the on chip memory is effectively m- is blank and you populate it in the program. When the function returns, that 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 memory is effectively freed and available for the next function.
2: Well, it's winning. can you
1: copy between the, uh, the the local memories? No. So the the, the collection of threads that share the on chip memory are resident in the machine at the same time, but is not. They're not allowed to communicate with others. So we still restrict you on that sort of sort of block thread block granularity. Uh, that that is still a restriction. The reason for that is. We don't guarantee which order the collections of threads are issued uh, are, are in the machine at any one time, because we we'll, may add more, or fewer processors, or just uh, uh, execute them potentially out of order. So we, tr- we still try to make the architecture scalable in that sense. So uh, the 8800 has 16 processors. You know, we could build a chip that has 32 or 64, and if your program, ha- as long as you issue functions with enough threads, we'll keep the machine busy. I should also emphasize that a lot of people want to use, I mean, the graphics processor is still there. It's <laughs> it still can render stuff. <laughs> In fact, the, one of the biggest uses is you know, offloading parts of your computation, uh, or parts of your graphics program, like scientific visualization, uh, onto the GPU. And then, because it's there, you can use it to render. So we do provide interoperability with OpenGL and D3D. And basically, you can take a D3D buffer object, if any of you are familiar with this. And and with CUDA, you can ask for a pointer to that buffer object. It returns you a GPU pointer. You can write and read to it, hand the uh, the pointer and the buffer object back to OpenGL and use it to render. Uh, Typical, a simple case of this is a particle system. If I have a particle system, um, a shower of sparks or a waterfall, for instance, simulations are often done with particle systems. I can do all the physics of the water and physics of the the sparks or uh, attraction or repulsion whatever or collision using CUDA. And then you, it's our data is already there. I can use that to then render with OpenGL D three D. This is an idea of what our SDK looks like. We've built two um, uh, standard libraries to help kick kickstart this. A lot of users, you know, we found that a lot of people are interested in FFTs, and we're actually pretty good at doing FFTs. I'll give you some performance numbers um, soon. Obviously, a lot of people are interested in linear algebra and BLAS, so we did a BLAS library. Uh, a most not everything, I'll, t- I'll talk about what's, what's there and what's not there. Um, so these libraries are just standard libraries. You can link them, use them, as long as they're uh, uh, an 8800 in your system, you'll, you'll, you'll get acceleration. Uh, the, the rest of the tool chain is for, of course, writing regular C code. So you can write your C code. It can be integrated, so portions of your code, as long as you specify the certain keywords, will compile for the GPU, the rest of the code Uh, is untouched by the compiler and is handed off to the host compiler. So the front end of our compiler, NVCC, um, takes this integrated uh, CPU-GPU code. It takes the CPU portions of your code and leaves them alone, basically hands them off and hands them off to whatever host compiler you have on the system, whether that be Microsoft's Visual Studio or GCC whatever. The GPU parts are what interest us. We run those through our own um, compiler, which outputs a... a uh, uh, assembly format. This is basically our instruction set for the GPU and then that 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 binary is bound, is linked in with the application and there's a runtime library that you need to link with your application, of course, to implement things like malloc and free and whatnot. We also do have a profiler uh, that can tell you how long a particular function took to run on the GPU, how long the memcopy took, yeah. uh, what kind of bandwidth you're seeing, as well as uh, if you, if you ha- hit any perf uh, issues or uh, bad read or write patterns that may, may degrade performance. I should also emphasize that you don't need to take your entire application and use our compiler. Typically what people do is they have a very large application they take the 1c file that does, does a lot of the heavy lifting and port that. And then the output of this is just the .o or an obj file that you can link in with your application. So it's designed to work in a large program environment. So I should talk about the BLoS library. Um, it's a self-contained BLoS library. You need no interaction with the CUDA driver. You don't need to learn our, our language semantics. It's an API just like it prevents. We actually work with um, uh, Fortran bindings, that sort of thing. We only did a subset of BLAS. Basically, we did single real real routines for BLoS 1, 2, and 3. Um, we did BLoS 1 complex, because it was easy, and C Jam, which some people use. We'll add more if customers. Are, are interested. Uh, it's pretty simple to use. You create matrices and vector ex- vector objects. It's slightly different than uh, we had did have to extend a little bit because we're not working in the same memory address space as a CPU. So allocating of the arrays uh, of the matrices and vectors is, is done a little differently than a uh, legacy BLOS library. But after that, it's just basically called a, a, a sequence of BLAS, a CPU BLAS functions. Uh, we we did all sort of the things we could do to keep uh, consistency with existing Fortran applications. And we have linked this library with Fortran apps and that all seems to work. Our FFT library. um, If any of you have used FFTW, it's largely based off the FFTW interface. It's not much different. Um, It features sort of 1D, 2D, 3D FFTs of complex values and data. Uh, You can also do batched execution. So if you have a batch of 1D transforms, you can hand off a whole batch, and we'll issue that in parallel. That helps keep the machine full. Uh, And we have arbitrary transform sizes from 2 to 16K, um, and all the different mixed radix kind of stuff in between. And in case anyone's never seen a 2D spectra, that's what it looks like. Oh, actually, we, so we've ported this. We've actually, um, that pressure example I gave before, uh, we used we actually used the FFT library to sol- do the pressure solve in frequency space. Um, for mathematicians out there, the frequency space actually y- is a little more amenable to doing the convolution portion of the pressure solve, because convolution turn, turns into multiplies. So I have a little video of that. So this is run. I think it's a 1k by 1k grid on an 8800. So the little mouse here, uh, then all the particles basically show the, the flow through the through the field. So we're doing all the pressure solve using the FFT library, uh, and then we just switched to uh, Core 2 Intel to show sort of the speed up performance. Uh, yeah, this is all real time. This is captured with with a frame grabber off the video. So you can see the mouse there. He's moving the mouse around, controlling a jet, and 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 playing with the fluids. So this is a one k by one k uh-huh. uh, fluid solve. Um, the pressure solve is it, it takes it from an iterative to a sort of a one pass in frequency space. Um, the the paper. I'll let this finish one more time. I have a paper credit in there. You can. Very fun. Actually, you can watch this whole thing stabilize. And, it turns into one large translation with two vortices, and then the vortices stop, and it just turns into translations. It's pretty <laughs> Is that the same program running on the uh,
2: Intel with the same Yeah, concept. so we just hit a
1: button and move the data from the GPU to the CPU and just do the iteration. Yeah. Do the same. F- we're using FFTW, I believe. Same code, same algorithm. We're using an FFT library on the CPU. More,
2: more or less power than a
1: lot of them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> probably the same single GPU or are you running a non-multiple GPU? This is
2: one, one GPU. GP. So is a, is are the is the, oh, the OpenGL and DirectX libraries sort of built on top of CUDA? Or oh, yeah. is
1: they both all written on top of one
2: other sort of more um, so that was an option
1: we faced at the very beginning. We could sort of build our GPU library on top of OpenGL or d 3 and we decided, you know what people really want is a close, you know, a a, a high performance sort of Lean mean driver. So we actually wrote a separate driver from, open, so it's a peer to OpenGL or D3D. Um, this is actually using the OpenGL interoperability I talked about, talked about where the fluid solve is done. We update the particles all with CUDA, and then the particles are again just ready the to
2: OpenGL. Yes. So the kernel component, component. Yeah,
1: yeah. The kernel component, uh, at which does the memory management, is of course shared because when we do a memory allocation, I don't want to step on top of OpenGL's memory. Management. But the core, only the core sort of core kernel component, which is doing the scheduling between OpenGL, comp- you know, CUDA, and D three D. So, are
2: there any capabilities then that are open to the uh, uh, OpenGL or uh, DirectX that aren't exposed to CUDA? Uh,
1: so, uh, I guess I'd say that OpenGL kind of runs in graphics mode, and when you run in in when you run in CUDA, it runs in compute mode. So, graphics, of course, has. Things like the rasterizer, which are just not exposed in CUDA. So you know, if you can use the rasterizer for your needs and for general purpose computing, you know, more power to you. But uh, most of the performance <laughs> <laughs> is sitting in that fragment shader anyway. So, uh,
2: How well do the two worlds coexist? If you have that yeah, hardware? The hardware will
1: schedule. Well, actually, we'll do hardware scheduling. So if you know, OpenGL is running for a while, and it gets a time slice in the GPU, then CUDA will run for a while. We'll, we'll schedule it like we do, like a NoS would normally schedule a CPU. Yeah? When you're in
2: compute mode, do you have access to the interpolation units at all? Or is it, do you basically only have load storage? Uh, you, you don't have access
1: to interpolation units. Um, what we found is that actually it, it's, a, it's, it's really not that much math uh, to, to do a quick multiply add, which is just one instruction. Um, so that is maybe a, a downside to using it because all you get as input is a, a, a thread ID. Um, but it wasn't that much math, so not a huge loss. Go back to the presentation. Oh, crap. So, marketing bar graph. Forgive me, but these are actually oh, sorry. Stop that. Marketing bar graph, but these are observed numbers um, of some of basically comparing against a 2.66 uh, core two duo um, using both cores. We were careful that on the CPU we should use both cores um, of some performance advantage. In general, we'd like to see over 10x. Most A lot of our applications do. In some cases, we get extreme speed ups. And I'll talk about why that is in a second. Uh, but we did a bunch of different applications. This rigid body solver, again, is I, I should emphasize for this crowd, this is a rigid body solver that's used in games, not necessarily in uh, robust scientific uh, simulations. These are some BLOS results. Wave equation, this is the FDTD num- result. Um, biological sequence match, this is um, basically looking for loose matching, for protein matching. It's an important benchmark in the uh, bioinformatics. And then finance, this is option pricing, Black-Scholes um, benchmarks. So here's some hard numbers. BLOS-1 one, BLOS one is a vector-vector series of um, operations. Tend to be memory bandwidth, just because you're, you're just streaming over vectors. We, we typically see 60 plus gigabytes a second of memory bandwidth to the GPU. Um, BLOS3 tends to be more compute intensive, right? You're doing ON o- cubed operations over ON data, potentially. Um, and that gets over a, we, we see typically over 100 gigaflops of sort of BLOS3 library performance. FFT, if you take a, there's a benchmark, there's a website uh, FFTW actually uses called BenchFFT. FFT. They provide a numerical formula for computing how long an FFT should take of a certain size, and how many gigaflops that, Theoretically corresponds to. So I say, it's using the bench FFT uh, equation. We typically see about 52 gigaflops worth of performance uh, for FFTs. Uh, FDTD is the electromagnetic simulation I talked about at the very beginning, um, and we can update 1.2 gigacells per second. S search is the as the protein matching so sort of string searching algorithm, um, 5.2 and then Black option option pricing is some ridiculous 4.7 gig ops options per second. So why are these numbers so great? I should emphasize, of course, we have more memory bandwidth than a typical CPU because we're, you know, graphics tends to be very sensitive to memory bandwidth performance, so we we can use the fastest memories and dedicate a lot of our pins to 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 memory. But Importantly, we can leverage that parallel data cache. So, you know, we, can, we can capture some of the gigaflop performance, all those shaders that are in the GPU, by keeping the data close to the, to the ALUs by spinning inside the parallel data cache instead of streaming out to video memory and back. GPUs tend to have a lot more gigaflops than CPUs in terms of raw gigaflop power. Um, and some of the reasons why we're seeing 197x is because some of these benchmarks can take advantage of hardware intrinsic instructions. For instance, graphics t- has a dedicated sine instruction, cosine instruction ap- that executes only in a few cycles, instead of the math.h sort of sine instruction. Now, of course, they're not full precision; they're they they're enough precision that matters for graphics. But for something like options pricing, you can sometimes just get away with a lower precision um, and and much faster results. I should also emphasize that all the benchmarks are compiled code. There's, you know, my group we. We don't hand code anything, <laughs> you know, we, we, we try to, to use our own tool toolchain to, and evaluate that as part of your performance. So s- to conclude, I guess I'm, I'm getting close on time, um, I've talked about GPU computing on the 8800, uh, we've per- basically added a simple multi-threading model to the GPUs with a parallel data cache um, and global memory access. The software toolchain basically is C on GPUs with a couple of extensions for dealing with the fact that you have lots of threads in the machine, uh, but it's effectively C. Our front end is a fully licensed C+, C and C++ front end, so we're fully compatible, even bug compatible, with uh, GCC and Microsoft. Uh, the toolchain, the driver, is all dedicated for this. We're not doing this on top of OpenGL or D3D. We've built our own custom driver to give you direct access to the hardware. We've done two libraries to help you uh, sort of kickstart. If you're just interested in FFT, you can start using these right away. Uh, And availability, right now we're um, we're in a beta program. Uh, This is basically to you know it's early software. There there might be some bugs, so we're we're doing a registered beta program to keep the to help people that want to try out new software and give it a shot, maybe and help us figure out some of these bugs. They can register online, um, and as long as you fill out the form and don't say you're, you know, you're Mickey Mouse or something like that. We'll pretty much, uh, we'll accept you, and uh, and you can you can try it out. This should work on any GeForce 8800 that you buy at Fry's or or, or elsewhere. Uh, our, we're trying to work toward a public release early next year. Um, one question I often get asked is single precision, double precision. I'm not interested because I don't have double precision. We are planning to do a double precision GPU next year. So that is, uh, double precision is coming and is on the roadmap. I Full IEEE, e, it works. Uh, maybe not signaling NANs, but you know.
2: <laughs> That's okay. This will not work on older GPUs at all? This, this is just for
1: the 8800 and, and onward. So this, this is a, the solution will be forward compatible. And, uh, it's not just a one off. Uh, let's start and we'll move way back. Yeah. What did you
2: discover you wished you had in the hardware when all the doesn't settle? <laughs>
1: <laughs> There's a lot of stuff we've learned as doing this. Uh, double precision was clearly one of them and something we didn't get right away. Um, I, it's difficult to explain without going into details of, of, of teaching it. One, you know, I think we can improve access to memory, uh, even further. We're working in a big parallel environment, so we need more sort of atomic parallel intrinsics to help us deal with the fact that we have lots of threads in the machine and we may maybe need to update things in it more atomically. Uh, I think w- we're working on that and trying to improve that as well.
2: Yeah, so one of the questions. Is there any utilities to mutual exclusion? Uh, so, so we do
1: have a synchronization primitive. I didn't okay. get too far into language in this talk. Okay. Um, but you know, one thing is that you have this shared memory that's on chip. So you can do a parallel load across all the threads to bring stuff from video memory into that on-chip shared memory. And there's a synchronization barrier primitive that you can place in your code. And that's basically a barrier in the code to make sure everyone's done their loads before you work on that parallel data. Uh, parallel data.
2: And how many programs can you populate reasonably to get? I mean, you have thousands of threads, but you can't, I assume you can't have thousands of programs.
1: No, uh, typically what people do is they it, it, it's. Um, it's not strictly data parallel in the sense that you don't run one thread per data element, but you typically run one thread for a, a collection, or in some case in one data element. Or a so
2: environment rather than just a single program, a couple. Yeah. So usually like you
1: kick now. off a function over an entire grid, okay. and that corresponds to your 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 grid of threads. Uh, I think you were in the next.
2: How well does this scale uh, with respect to uh, having multiple 8800s on the same motherboard?
1: So our goal is to. So you can put um, motherboards today, I think, have two PCIe slots. I think we just announced a three PCIe slot solution. Um, we also have a product called Quadruplex, which is a breakout box. It's an interface card that plops into a, a, a PCIe slot It goes to an external chassis with an external power supply that breaks out into two PCI slots. So you can This can grow. <laughs> um, I think to, I, I don't want to say how many we can do right now because I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure what the final number will be. But um, uh, that the program model is meant to be explicit. So we're not trying to auto-parallelize across the different GPUs. You can ask how many GPUs in the system connect to that GPU, use that GPU. You can run a different thread or, uh, or a different program on a different GPU or, or, the same or distribute, do the data um d- data so you decomposition, can run the one. So you can run the
2: one program on multiple GPUs?
1: Sure. Uh, in the back.
2: So I, maybe I misunderstood or missed this. So
1: when you these threads, they're issued this thread identifier, and you use that to figure out what data that your yeah, I was thread are working on. Right. So you those
2: internally in the function itself, or there's some other
1: so, so that they just work on a set of data and a set of addresses, and you spray out the data ahead of time in, in the way that you want. Right. right. It's totally up to you. All we're giving you is a thread ID. It's totally up to you to decide how to do the point arithmetic to, to decide what thread wants to work on that piece of data. We're not going to spray the data around for you dynamically. Um, you know, we, we thought about that, and you know, conceptually that's possible. But data decomposition in a parallel programming environment, you know, there's PhD theses and different ways of doing that for different you know, for structured meshes or regular grids. It's something that it's clear you want to program, you want know, the programmer to decide how they want to decompose their problem and decompose their data set. To, to, to be efficient. So, we don't do any sort of dynamic, you know, this thread must work on this region of the data. You just basically get a pointer, and you, you typically take that pointer and add the, uh, the, thread, ID the thread ID to it. Correct. What
2: data is. Uh, I have two questions. So, first, is the language that CG compiles to open standard? Is it
1: published, or is there some black box that we want know? So, this about? is not CG. CG is a different language entirely. <laughs> uh, this is all C. So we've done, there's a, there's a, a shading language that NVIDIA has developed for doing sort of graphic shading called CG. And uh, that's used for, and it has things like texture and it's the legacy of that. This is all just C. It's a totally new compiler. tree. So
2: chip. is the stuff that you compile to, like is a language that it's compiled to open standard? or? It is published. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's
1: standard of the fact that NVIDIA designed it for, it's designed for our architecture
2: does <coughs> this compared to, to ATI CTM stuff?
1: Uh, I think the biggest difference between CTM, oh, CTM, uh, there's a couple things. CTM does have um, uh, gather scatter capabilities or access to memory. Uh, they don't have the per- the on-chip memory that the 8800 has, the parallel data cache, which is a significant sort of, you still have sort of, st- your programs still sort of stream through memory. Um, the other thing is that our Language solution is a uh, we have a much stronger effort on a software tool chain. CTM is a ISA spec that you can, and you have to still use sort of legacy shader languages to compile to that ISA and maybe tweak them. Over Which there. Power? That's How much understand. power? Yes. don't know the exact number uh, off the top of my head. Um, I think peak is, is around 100 watts or something like that. Maybe, uh, maybe more. It can get hot. Yeah. But you know, there's, there's power to spare these days in a, in a chassis. It's enough, it's enough to cool it. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah. So I'm trying to look forward a bit. Is, is this sort of the point where uh, you know, GPU designers really start thinking about compute needs and designing the chips for that? Or is it mainly still, we do the graphics first and you can get this little bolt on yeah. here? And you're secretly hoping that we all go blind tomorrow <laughs> so that you can get the, the hardware designers' <laughs> real attention here? I mean, w- How do you see this developing from here on? There is a trade-off
1: between the graphics program model and the compute program model. What they've what they basically have d- tried to do is design a, a computing program model that is sufficiently general, but still within the right direction that scales so graphics can continue to scale and add features um, that, that are aligned with the way Compute wants to go. Um, one important aspect is that if you look at what, you know, GPGPU has, the trend historically is they've always been sort of one step up above, you know, ahead of what graphics shaders want to do. GPGPU programs tend to be much longer, for instance, than graphics shaders. They tended to want to do, use integers and, and bit ops than before graphics did. But as you see, features from, that were requested in GPU becoming regular in graphics. So it's, it's one of the driving things in NVIDIA in general in designing of GPUs is making them more general purpose. Because if you look at what the shaders are trying to do today, they really are becoming way more general purpose in sort of solving complex lighting sim- uh, simulations, doing some primitive ray tracing to, to do global illumination, that sort of thing. So it's it's an effort to m- make GPUs more general purpose, because that's sort of the directions graphic shader, shaders are going. So we're aligned in that sense, and that we're, we're both pushing in the same direction. They still want to s- render an image when they're done. Um, but it isn't to say that you could do part of your game physics with the GPU. And, and definitely game physics is a, is a very interesting area um, for NVIDIA, because it's, it's, it's more horsepower than the GPU, meaning your game could have more objects, more, si- more simulated physics objects in your, in your game than you could before um, because they were CPU limited. Let me start over here. Is that in, the in this corner?
2: Yeah. Uh, more on synchronization primitives. You said you had a barrier sync, but that's pretty
1: heavyweight for lots of programs. Yeah, I should say that it's barrier within uh, a collection of threads that are sharing the parallel data cache, typically 100 threads. Uh, within a function. Um, the machine, obviously, may be working on collections, many, multiple collections of those threads in, in, in parallel. So it will keep the machine busy. And the, the barriers are hardware accelerated. So they, they, they're, they issue very quickly if, if everyone is in the same place in the code. So if are just doing producer-consumer kinds of things between threads, you need much? Yeah, we typically don't do much producer-consumer. Uh, we basically we need so many threads to produce consumer you can think of it as a form of task parallelism. You have a producer and you have a consumer. Typically, we, ne- we fill the machine with so many threads that it, we, tend not, we tend to follow more in the data parallel camp than the task parallel environment. We can talk more about that. I'm back. Uh,
2: you mentioned 16K for the data cache, but how, what's the size of programs you can fit on for the threads?
1: The threads can be up to a, a few million compiled instructions per function.
2: Right, like right uh, there for that. Yeah, yeah,
1: no. The, the programs are stored in the GPU memory, and there's an instruction cache that you don't have to worry about, and all that kind of stuff. So there's no on. There's unlike I think cell, you have to. There's a limited. You have to use this on chip memory for instruction store. So your programs have to fit in the 256K, and yeah, of that's there. So that's fine. Yeah. You exposed the, the texture
2: units for the
1: API at all? Yeah, right? the texture stuff is all still there. So a lot of people have figured out that texturing, so um, the image fetch engine did a lot of useful things, like it did filtering between, pixels, between two pixels in an image. It also dealt with uh, boundary conditions, so it could do clamp to edge or mirror modes. And a lot of people figured out that that was very useful for general purpose computing because they could take their boundary condition and just throw it to the texture unit and not worry about it. All that's still available to you and you can, you can take any GPU piece of memory and bind it to the texture and access it through the legacy x, y sort of position stuff. Yeah. So the GPU kernels execute only on GPU memory, and the programmer has to explicitly copy data between CPU and GPU? Yes. Uh, the bulk of the data resides in GPU memory. You need to memcopy it down or memcopy it back to the CPU. Uh, we do a allow parameter passing. So When you call a function on a GPU, you can pass. A, we have a parameter space and pass, pass things through parameter, although. You wouldn't pass a, the entire data set that way, obviously. You may pass a GPU pointer or, or a, a value and that sort of thing. How much time do I have? We have
0: about five minutes. And we can go about a couple to five minutes. Well, week. I'm
1: around afterwards. So uh, let me see if there's else. A lot of
2: scientists like uh, Max. Um, is there any chance of seeing this on Apple as well? Uh,
1: I would love to get this ported onto Apple. It's just uh, it's a matter of manpower. <laughs>
2: How do you see it going as far as going up to high-performance computing, you know, sort of a bunch of these on one the rack, and then down on the other end sort of to play in the DSP market? I don't know if you're going to play in an 8200 version of this right. that gets maybe a little bit less than 100 watts. Um,
1: yeah, yeah. I, so this will be available on the entire GeForce 8 XXX family, including the lower end uh, part. So right now we have the 8800, but it's typical NVIDIA. does provide, you know, a variety of, different products at different sort of price, performance, power um, spots. So this should be available in all those. Specifically on the D- in the DSP market, do you see this playing? Uh, potentially. I mean, basically anywhere where, there, you know, DSPs or, you know, cell phones, they want to do video processing, they want to do image processing. We're, we tend to be pretty good at that. Uh, so uh, right now the emphasis is on the G-Force. Line we don't have any products for for the DSP market, but <coughs> yeah. You
2: that pressure simulation that was one k by one k. Yeah. Uh,
0: that's
2: a big number.
1: Sure. How did you fill that fit that into the G force? It fit within 768 megs. Looked
2: it for me. You got 16 uh, processing blocks, each with 16 k of memory.
1: No, no, no. The, the memory, res- the pressure data resides in the GPU memory. It resides in the 768 megs. The FFT is done um, in the, uh, is blocked for that on-chip memory explicitly. So the whole data set doesn't need, need to live in the 16K. Uh, we actually just we block the computation for that on-chip memory, like you would block, for instance, in, on an L1 or L2 cache on a CPU. Thank you. You had a question? Yeah, it looks like this
2: chip is not going to show up in the
1: one laptop per child at two watts. <laughs> Not right now. In the corner?
2: What's a thread context look like? Sorry? A, a thread context. A thread context. A thread context. Um,
1: yep. so each thread when it kicks off gets a thread ID. Uh, it is init- the the parallel data cache, that shared memory, is is initialized, uh, is uninitialized, it's empty. Um, we have a you know, program counter, uh, there's access to, there's some texture, so you can access the images if you want to. There's constants, um, uh, and of course, there's, there's registers. So it's, it's fairly similar to a, to a x86 architecture, except that you have lots of threads in the machine at the same time, and we've added some extra memory spaces.
2: And the stack uh, is sure. oh, i sh- I didn't mention that there is a
1: per-thread local address space as well that you can use for stack or indexable memory. Um, uh, in a, in a per-thread space. Yeah.
2: Can you step through thread programs? So we, we
1: don't, don't have a good so our debugger solution right now, because we're so close to C, we can basically give a flag to NVCC and it retargets, and will compile your code, basically back to the CPU. So you, and then our runtime library runs in a sort of GPU emulation mode, where instead of kicking off. 100 threads in the GPU, it kicks off 100 threads in the CPU. And you can use your regular CPU debugger, Viz Studio, GDB. We actually relax a lot of the constraints. You can go ahead and put printfs in there and that kind of stuff to do printf debugging if that's your preference. So typically, I think, don't
2: GPUs typically have performance counters? Does the profiler give you access to that? Yeah,
1: it does. So it'll tell you when you do. There there's some, uh, I didn't get into some performance details. There are certain write patterns that you know, like on CPUs, that are more efficient than other ones. And our profiler does give you uh, not just timing information, but how many times you may have made one of those uh, you know, misaligned writes, that sort of stuff. Or how many times you issued a branch, and that kind of s- usual performance counter kind of stuff. So
0: you refer to the memory as a cache. So
2: it's really just a memory that is used uh, Yeah, it's just a memory. So there's no cache.
1: Well it's software replacement yeah. policy. Effectively de- We call it a cache because it's you know it's really close to the LUs and people are used to, you know. Uh, but it's it's really a software managed cache in that regard. So it, it's not it's, there's no hardware mechanisms to deal with tagging or any of that sort of stuff. But even in software
2: there's no replacement policy. Correct. It, it's really it's just a
1: memory
0: it's that just the user an yeah.
2: manages. And do you provide an image function for moving primitives for moving data and
1: no, it's just load store. So you, you, you reference a pointer and store it then a, a variable. And that variable is declared as shared. And that means that shared it gets put in that parallel data cache. So it's just a greater copy. Data from the memory to the on-chip memory.
2: Correct. Yeah. You just do load,
1: you know, load store like you would
2: see. Yeah. You compared to performance to CPUs, could you talk about things like cell compared to GPUs? I don't have any good
1: performance numbers with cell. Um, Probably because we didn't we don't benchmark the same things. Uh, <laughs> uh, I can talk a little bit about GPU before and after. I mean that parallel data cache does help you a lot. For instance, the FFT. For, uh, before we had to do all that um, uh, you know an FFT calculation had to go all the way throughout to video memory and back and it was extremely expensive and slow. We were getting something. This is the parallel data cache is giving us like a 10x kind of improvement uh, by by using it.
2: Uh, when, when you pump data uh, from the video memory into the local stores, yeah. um, and you want to get you know, maximum throughput, is there any sort of tricks you have to do? Because I mean, I'm, I'm just, especially if you just say it's just load store, you know, no prefetching, or uh, how does it, because all you're doing is, is loading up 32-bit registers. Sure. It seems like you're not going to drive the memory fast enough.
1: Right. So the reason why you have so many threads in the machine is that we can often hide the latency of uh, off-chip memory read, like a read from video from the GPU memory, uh, by scheduling in another thread. So uh, you can keep the memory busy by having lots of threads accessing memory. And what
2: about the width of the data, the data access? Uh, you, know you
1: can you get mo- almost full performance with a regular 32 byte load. Well, 32 uh, byte So I should emphasize, you have multiple threads accessing 32 bytes, sorry, 32 bits. I'm sorry. (laughs) 32, just a regular word, (laughs) word access. But what's happening in the machine is you have parallel threads executing at the same time. So you're actually having multiple word reads, and the memory controllers are are keeping the, the DRAMs busy by servicing all those loads.
2: Um, you sort of draw the parallel data cache off of the site. So does that mean there's a performance penalty when you use it versus your own registers? It's as, it's or is
1: it just the same as registers? It's pretty much the same as registers. So then on, you're running in GPU mode. Is that just wasted? or It's used for other things. Oh, okay. uh, it's used for rendering stuff. What are the next versions of the GeForce
2: going to be scaling? Like, is it more of that parallel data memory or more data LUs? Yeah the, the, like the the sure. yeah, the
1: so. architecture is designed to be scalable so that you could have, we could support more parallel data cache. We also could put down more of these processors if we have the die area to do so. Um, what's, market, like what's your priority
2: to what to scale first? Since you're going to be targeting graphics first, oh, I want to scale all of it. I think
1: uh, <laughs> definitely having more on chip memory is a good thing. I can block more. mean, usually means I can get more performance. Um, There's plenty of algorithms that get get better. texture
2: memory as opposed to parallel data memory? Yeah, that parallel data
1: cache, that on-chip memory. Um, Texture is generally off-chip, and they tend to be very large images. Um, So more general GPU memory is important. 768, some data sets may not fit in that more on-chip memory for sure, and more, more just raw floating point horsepower by adding more processors down on chip. It, it's, designed, it's meant to be scalable that right? way. I think I'm over time. Yeah, we should so, probably
0: stop now. If there's a lot of people interested in asking questions, we can just kind of stay seated after people leave and ask questions online. And I have
1: some more videos I can show if you're interested. Okay,
0: so let's do that. Um, if you want to leave, go ahead and leave now, and we'll stop the cameras. Thank you very much. Yeah. For information on other online Stanford seminars and courses, please visit study.stanford.edu. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.